it's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, men, I, I just echo what Holly just said, and uh, I'm hoping to look each one of you in the face and say, I want you there. If not, I'm doing it right now. And, and I know you got a million, you got a million excuses, and none of them are, are really all that valid. So, <laughs> be there, truly. Uh, I talked about lust last week. We're talking about marriage this morning. Those are two reasons why you need to be there. Well, I'm single. You, you need to be there. And we're, we're not even going to be talking about marriage. We're not going to be talking about lust specifically probably at this retreat. We're going to be talking about our identity in the gospel. I promise you that is the key component as we battle lust and as we deal with issues in our marriage and issues in singleness. Men, be there. I challenge you. Be here tonight as well. I dare you. I dare you to be here tonight. I dare you to sign up for the retreat. Are you tired of mediocrity? Spiritually, emotionally? Then come to these things. You tired of like pointing the finger at everybody else saying, ah, no one talks to me. I don't have any friends in this church. No one ever says anything. I dare you. I dare you to come tonight. And I dare you to go on the retreat. And then if you can say afterwards, like, nah, I don't have any friends. This church is lame. Then leave. Go find a better church because this church stinks. If you go to both those things and you have no community and there's no power of God in your life and you have no friends, I've got an edge this morning, I'm sorry, uh, then, then you need to leave and go to a better church, okay? But like, I'm, I, I plead with you, do these things. I do have an edge this morning, I warn you, like, okay, you can get out right now, but after that, <laughs> I'm probably going to cry, it's going to get crazy up in here this morning. Amen. Woo! <laughs> All right. If you're going to Mexico on the missions retreat this week, would you raise your hand? If you're going to Mexico. All right, we've got a great team. There's folks going next week. I just want to stop. I want to pray for you guys. And then uh, we got a group you know, in the second service as well. So let me pray. Father, would you be with our team that goes to Mexico this weekend? And I pray for our students in particular that, that as they go, that you'd keep, not keep them safe. I pray that you would upend their life, that you would cause them to see things that, that they can't even believe, that they, they would have their hearts flipped upside down by the needs in this world, that they would have their hearts flipped uh, upside down about your amazing love. So I pray that you would not keep them safe. Physically, yes. Emotionally, spiritually, no. Lord, do a work. Show them, show them things about themselves, about our own culture, about the culture there, about the needs in this world and what you're doing to meet those needs. Oh God, please be at work. Do keep them safe as they cross the border. Do keep them physically safe. But Lord, do a powerful, powerful work in the lives of this team. Use them, bond them, and grow them, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. If you've got a Bible, would you turn to Matthew 5? And there's, there's our passage, verse 31 through 32. But I'm going to back up for just a minute. I want to read to you from the Sermon on the Mount from the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, because here's what's going on in Matthew 5. Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, is gathering his disciples to tell them about life in the kingdom. And before he gets specific, like about lust and marriage and anger and enemies and so forth, he tells them the kind of people that are going to be entering the kingdom and, and warning them of the kind of people that will not be entering the kingdom. And so before we talk about this very hard and wonderful and difficult issue of marriage, I want us to hear afresh what Jesus says about the heart attitude and the heart dispositions of the kind of people that are in his kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 3, and he opened his mouth 
and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, that's humility. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. For righteousness, for holiness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers. For they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now we come to our text today where Jesus says in verse 31 through 32, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. I've got a lot of roles in my life, um, a lot of hats that I wear. You know, I, I'm a father and a husband, and that, those, that's a hat, that's a, a role, that's a calling in my life. That's actually my most important one on earth. Like, there's my relationship with God, and then, honestly, it's not being a pastor. It's being a husband and it's being a father. Those are the two most important roles in my life. And so that's a role, that's, that's, that's what I do. But then people wonder, like, what do pastors do? Like, what do you do? Do you play golf and count money? I mean, what are you doing all week? I, we know what you do on Sunday. You show up, and a couple of you play guitar and pray and all that stuff, but like, and you preach. But, like, what do you do the rest of the week? We got stuff to do, let me tell you. Like, uh, last few weeks in particular, last few months, we, we counsel people. We, we do business stuff, like, I've become like a semi-professional when it comes to commercial real estate, like uh, banking, budgets, goal setting, all this stuff, details, systems, like there's a lot to this. Like this is a, a, an actually semi-complex organization to run. It's an all-volunteer organization with hundreds of people and, and a good deal of money and budgets and planning and all this stuff. You know, it's like it's, there's business stuff, and that's a role that I have to, to wear and, and so forth. And and I actually find it very fun, all these various things that we get to do and dabble in. It's, it's, it's interesting. We, we do branding. We do marketing. We have websites and logos and advertisements and all that stuff. I find that very interesting and very fun. But ultimately, all the stuff we do, buildings, budgets, la, 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 at the end of the day, pastors are called to be shepherds of sheep. And I love all the other stuff I do, I do. It's fascinating to me. Like, I would get really bored in a job that didn't have so much variety. But, at the end of the day, I'm called to shepherd sheep. This is what the Bible says. And to teach the word of God to those sheep, to administer the sacraments, to pray for the sheep, to encourage the sheep. And you're a sheep, and I'm a shepherd, okay? And I'm also a sheep. Bah. You know? And so, that's our calling as followers of Jesus. And pastors are called to shepherd the flock. Part of the difficulty of pastoring a flock of people is, is your pastors and elders, that's, that's a synonym, and, and, and then there's other people that assist us, like there are so many women and men 
small group leaders and volunteers and team leaders that help us shepherd this flock so faithfully. Many, many women and men that help us shepherd this flock. And by far, the greatest burden that we have as the shepherd of you sheep is your marriages. It's a burden. And it's a burden that I gladly carry, but it's a weight. And so I come to you this morning as a shepherd, your shepherd, heavy-hearted. And there will be (laughs) some intensity this morning and a call. And it's not with judgment, I assure you. It's not. There isn't a single person in this room that's not been profoundly affected by divorce. Many of you have been divorced. Many of you, as I look around the room, many of you have been divorced. Many of you are children of divorce. I am. Many of you are sitting here right now thinking about divorce. Everyone in this room has been profoundly impacted by this issue of divorce. And so I come to you with absolutely no judgment, I promise you. But I come to you this morning with Jesus' grace and truth. Grace and truth, that's what the gospel is. It is grace and it is truth. That's what the Bible is. It is grace and it is truth. And if you remove grace, you've got nothing but empty religion and law and legalism, and you do not have the gospel. Amen? You remove, you remove grace, you've just got what the Pharisees had, law and nitpicking and fighting and trying to figure out details and like how to let each other have it, and loopholes and, and hypocrisy and self-righteousness and all the stuff the culture blames us because a lot of times we have truth without grace. But the gospel is grace and truth. Oftentimes we have truth without grace, but it's also possible to have grace without truth. And as I look at the church today, honestly, I think we're failing in both extremes profoundly. There are many movements of Christianity that are filled with grace with no truth whatsoever, and that's only increasing because there is so much pressure on the body of Christ from culture to ignore truth and just to embrace grace. But the gospel is so much better news than grace alone. That's emptiness, that's hollow, that's shallow, that's really no grace whatsoever because it would take me too long to unpack today. You can't have grace without truth. The very definition of grace is that There is a truth, I've broken that truth, and I'm forgiven, right? So grace comes in light of truth. That would take too long to go much further in that. But the gospel is truth and grace. So we're going to really try to balance that in this this body every single day that we do life together. Grace and truth. And so some of you are going to maybe feel like judged this morning. That is not the intent. We're trying to balance grace and truth. And and, and, uh, here's the other thing that you do in a sermon like this is you're going to read into things that I say and think I'm pointing at you and thinking of you and like he's got me in mind. No, I don't have any of you in mind. Uh, I promise, I don't. Not a single one of you. I'm not preaching to anyone. So if you feel like, oh my gosh, he's thinking of me. I'm not. I am not thinking of anyone. I'm just trying to balance grace and truth. This topic is going to poke a wound for many of us. Some of you carry a wound regarding divorce marriage and we're gonna maybe be poking at that but the holy spirit wants to heal you right where you are most wounded you know that right wherever your wound is the greatest wherever 
uh, th- that infection of insecurity, like Tyson just mentioned, or, or anger, or lust, or whatever it is, and usually those things are just symptoms of some other thing. That wound is, is the thing that goes deep, and God wants to heal it, but like many physicians, they have to hurt you a little bit in order to heal you. You know that, right? I mean, when we go to the physician, a good physician will tell you the truth, and often bring medicine or surgery, or and, and often it hurts. So the Holy Spirit may be poking at a profound wound in your heart or life today, and if it hurts a little, I, we're not talking like shame or whatever, but like it may hurt a little bit. Don't resist that pain at times, because God works through that to bring healing. He wants to heal us right where our wound is the greatest. So we get started. I've got really good news for you for you this morning. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Please do not hear that as license to just go do what you want to do uh, regarding your marriage or to live a grace abuse life, okay? But divorce is not the unpardonable sin. If you are divorced, if you have gone through a difficult divorce or uh, whatever, it is not the unpardonable sin. There is one unpardonable sin. Jesus warns of the unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? It is unbelief and it is pride. We say, uh-oh, I'm, I'm, I'm often filled with pride. It is that person that persists in a proud disposition that will not humble themselves before the living God in faith and repentance. Ongoing. We all live there at times, but like a persistent attitude of unbelief and un- an unrepentant heart, that is the unpardonable sin because the only sin that's unpardonable is the one that will not cry out to Jesus in faith and belief in his work to kill and forgive sin. Amen? That's the unpardonable sin. (laughs) We're going to talk about three things this morning. Marriage is meant to be permanent. It, It needs to be protected by those who live in the kingdom of God. And it requires God's power. It is meant to be permanent friends, followers of Jesus, we've got to protect our marriages, our future marriages, if you're single. And it requires, if if you've been married, you are married, you're thinking, it requires the power of God in your life. First, first it's this, marriage is meant to be permanent, and you know that the Bible says this, but I want to unpack it this morning. In Matthew 19, there's a, a setting, it's in your It's in your bulletin this morning, where the Pharisees come to Jesus asking this ridiculous question, if you think about it. They say, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any cause? (laughs) Would you please stop and think about that for just a second? We, more traditional folk, Christian folks, we are constantly bemoaning how culture has shifted and become so horrible and so liberal and open-minded and ridiculous But 2,000 years ago, the religious leaders of Israel at this time were saying, is it lawful to divorce your wife, not your husband, only your wife, for any cause? 
in this ridiculous, incredibly traditional culture, isn't it interesting? Like, we're always saying, like, oh, things used to be better. Look where culture's going. It's always been bad. It's always been a struggle because the human heart has always been built on selfishness, even in this very traditional culture. I hope that's not confusing, but do you see what I'm saying? Even among the Pharisees, they were saying, can I divorce my wife for any cause? Now, at this time, there were two rabbinic schools, the Hillel and the Shammai, Rabbi Shammai taught that only under substantive like reasons and causes could you issue a certificate of divorce. Rabbi Hillel, on the other hand, had a very relaxed view and taught that a husband could divorce his wife for any cause. And the Pharisees were drawn to Rabbi Hillel's view. Imagine that. The one that says, you get to do whatever you want. Her cooking's bad? Certificate. She's getting on your nerves? Certificate. You just like someone else down the street? Certificate, certificate, certificate. You could do it for any reason. If you were a man, who had all the power and the rights and the privileges in this culture? Men. Women had none. If you were a widow or you were a divorced woman, you were powerless economically in every way. Left with the children? This was horrible. This was a blight on their society. But these self-righteous Pharisees were looking for loopholes to establish a way that they could do whatever they wanted and yet still be counted as righteous. I want to be able to divorce you. I don't want to hang with you. I don't want to look for a way in. I want to look for a way out. And I still want to be deemed as incredibly righteous. Right? Didn't want to talk about the heart in lust, only want to talk about adultery. And by the way, I never, ever, ever commit adultery because as soon as I don't like you, I issue you a certificate of divorce. And it's not adultery if I'm not married, right? And Jesus says, you've got it all wrong. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answers, have you read your Bible? Matthew 19, 4 through 6, he answered, have you, read, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is calling them back to God's original intent. Not with what is, but what should be. We live in a broken, fallen world. And in light of that brokenness and fallenness and selfishness and sin, they wanted to live selfish lives however they wanted. But Jesus calls them back to God's original intent in, Matthew, in Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall. What was God's original intent? What is most healthy? What is best for children? What is best for you? What is best for society? One flesh. The two become one. Husband leaves his wife, or, or excuse me, husband leaves his family, his, his wife leaves their family, and they cleave. They become one. They hold fast to one another, which means they grip, grip one another. We're one. In the beginning, God created human beings, male and female. They become one flesh. Let no man tear apart, Jesus says, that which God has joined together. Let no man put a wedge or woman put a wedge between that which God has brought together. That obviously means divorce. But it means so much more than that. Every time I've talked on this text, I talk about not only just say, well, 
we're going to avoid divorce, avoid everything that would put a wedge between you. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, literally, whatever would put a wedge between you, Jesus would say, don't, don't let anything tear apart that which God has, has joined. So, these Pharisees co come with another question. Well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus, Moses commanded that. Do you remember that in the Old Testament? He went around saying, you all should get divorced. I command you, get divorced. That's what Moses said. Remember that in Genesis, in Exodus, or Exodus? In, remember that? No, I don't remember that. I don't remember Moses ever getting a law from God and coming down and go, you shall divorce your spouse. I don't, I don't remember that one. But that's the attitude these religious hypocrites are taking. Well, why then did he command it? Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. The beginning, the beginning, the beginning. The kingdom of God is all about the beginning. The kingdom of God is all about getting back to the beginning, the way things are supposed to be, not the way that things are broken, fallen, sinful, awful, selfish, but the kingdom of God is ushering in that which should be. We constantly are walking around in this life saying, this is not right. This is not right. Death is not right. One of my good friends in this church lost his mom this week. It's not right. She died. It's not right. Death's not right. Divorce's not right. Brokenness, abuse, all the things that lead to divorce, it's not right. This church, by the way, does not just pick on divorce. It also goes, we want to care about the heart and what leads there as well, right? So it is the brokenness, it's the, sin, the ways we sin against each other that lead people, tempt people to get divorced. It is the abuse, the, the extramarital affair, all the, these things are where we scratch our head and say, this is not the way life's meant to be. But Jesus is calling us back, back to his kingdom in the beginning. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And he said, gosh, that's harsh. Would you please also remember that last week Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've also committed adultery. We've all committed adultery, friends. You realize that, right? Jesus is saying the human heart is such that we're all guilty of the sin of adultery. Moses did not command divorce. He allowed it, but it was never God's design. God did not design marriage to be broken. He designed it so that there would be oneness of flesh, but in light of sin and brokenness and are the ways that we sinned against one another, sin against one another, Moses allowed for it. And Jesus is saying here, qualifying, he says no. So he finally gets to answering their question. Jesus doesn't answer very many questions. Have you noticed that? Nearly every time somebody asks him a specific question, he, doesn't, he just tells them a story. Or He finally answers this one. He says, no, you may not divorce your wife for any cause except for pornea, which is sexual immorality. We don't have time to get into this today, but Paul teaches that desertion is also grounds for divorce. It, it creates such a bereavement of the covenant and, and destroys it. And, and we believe in this church that there are types of, uh, there are severity 
of, of types of abuse that can be like an abandonment that is similar. And so abandonment, sexual immorality, these things can destroy a marriage, but that doesn't mean we should look for ways out or that we're looking for loopholes. We should be looking for ways in, but we live in a broken, fallen world, and because of the hardness of human hearts, there are times where people so destroy the covenant of marriage that it's like a death. Grace and truth. Most of us, though, want no-fault divorce. We want a way out. We want to figure out a way to like, describe that. But like, there are times where we can kill and destroy a marriage. And Jesus says that sexual immorality, Paul says, there are ways through abandonment, through, through abuse, we believe. These are tragic things to be mourned. These are not loopholes to be looking for, ways to get out, the exit door. Jesus is calling us back to the kingdom. The kingdom of God. And he's saying, look, this is the way life is meant to be. We're to love one another in the covenant in such ways that marriage isn't killed by our unfaithfulness, but it's upheld. And that's so hard. Every person I, I know that that's ever been married, I've done a, a number of weddings over the years, I, it's always two really selfish people coming together, always. Therefore, marriage is difficult. We're, we are to love one another in the covenant in such a way that marriage isn't killed by our unfaithfulness, neglect, and violence, but is to be upheld. It's meant to be permanent. And therefore, it must be protected. Time out for just a second. If you're single, I will not have you raise your hands. And when I, I, I qualify that, if you're like eighth grade up, all right? So <laughs> whether you're like 65 and single or you're like an eighth grader and up, would you please hear me for just a second? Marriage is not horrible. I love being married. Has it been easy? Nope, not at all. But it's wonderful. I would, I would sign up for being married to Becky Brown again today, right this second. I would do it five minutes from now. I would do it an hour from now. I would do it tomorrow, the next day, the next day. I've never, <laughs> I've never once said to myself, I want out of this thing. What I'm, I'm trying to do is not say, like, I'm so great, or my wife is. What I'm trying to say is, it, you're not always set up for cursing, because so often the way we describe marriage in these contexts is like, it's so hard. Who would ever want to do that? I'm just going to live with someone. I'm never going to tie the knot. Like, friends, marriage is a great gift, and when done correctly, it's hard. It's really hard, but it's wonderful. It's a blessing. And also, as I look around this room, I see several examples of marriage where that's absolutely true. I'm not the only one, friends. So, like, if you're single, don't despair. You can have a good marriage. Amen? You can have a good marriage. Do you have to fight for it? You do. And you can't play casual with Christianity. You can't play casual with the gospel or with one another. And that's what we're going to talk about. You've got to protect your marriage. But you can have a good marriage. I enjoy one. And it's hard as heck. Marriage needs to be protected. And the best way to protect it is to love one another. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> but to serve one another, to forgive one another, to commit to one another, to be patient with one another, to prefer one another, even as you're like treating each other horrible at times, to keep coming back to one another. But we've got to fight for being protected against temptation because we're so tempted. A few years ago, I was reading an article in the USA Today such a great paper, isn't it? 
so substantive. Just kidding, completely. But I found myself probably at a hotel. It's literally the only time I read USA Today because they're free under my door. And I'm reading this article that was talking about infidelity. And it's called The Infidelity Has a New Face. Modern World Blurs Rules About What's Acceptable. That was the name of the article. It was several years ago. But ironically, as I turned one page over, there was an, there was an advertisement for a new book called A Summer Affair. So just one page over from the article that was all about be careful, protect your marriage from, from temptation. One page over is this, this advertisement, a summer affair. She's the perfect mother and he's the perfect temptation. <laughs> Beautiful, like right? But that's the world we live in. It, the article said this, movies and TV glamorize affairs and make marriage appear dull. Everything in media, and I'm not one of these pastors like, don't ever watch television, don't, and forgive me for the accident, but like, don't, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, whatever, but I'm just saying like, I'm not one of these pastors that says no movies, no television, like I love movies, I love television, but can we be honest that every input from media is telling us if you're just faithful to one spouse, that's really boring. If you don't have a ton of partners in, in an intimate, physical way before you get married, that's really boring. If you, if you just live this life committed to one man and one woman for your whole life, that's really boring. I mean, that's what we're told. That's what this article's saying. I don't think it was coming from a Christian perspective. And the internet offers new frontier with pseudo-intimacy of cyber relationships as well as to greater access to pornography. Relationships that involve emotional sharing, whether in person or online, but that, that exclude your spouse. This is this article in, in USA Today. Relationships that involve emotional sharing, whether in person or online, but that exclude your spouse could be dangerous territory. Getting close to someone else to fulfill an unmet need for intimacy pulls you out of your marriage further and further and further. We've got to protect our marriages from these temptations that exist everywhere. I was on an airplane a few years ago. And there is this woman just grieving next to me. And as a pastor, I, when I get on an airplane, I'm just looking for a chance to not do that kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? Like pastoral care. I am not, I wish I was Mr. Faithful Pastor. I could tell you every time I get on an airplane, someone gets baptized. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm like just trying to go like, don't talk to me. <laughs> like I spend my life talking to people. I just want to read, you know. It's not right, but it is true. And so there's this woman just bawling and bawling and bawling, and I say to her, like, you okay? You know, and she said, like, I just, I'm leaving Texas, and I'm, I just got reestablished to this guy that I used to date back in high school, and, and it's just so hard, and I said, I'm a pastor, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> you want to talk? And she's like, yes, and I'm thinking immediately, Facebook, Facebook. Without Facebook, she would have never been reestablished with this old boyfriend from high school. But because of Facebook, I'm on Facebook. It's all cool. But like, she was. And, and so I start digging into the story. Yes, of course, it's Facebook. And, and, and it's this guy that she used to date. And she's flown to Texas to be with him. And he's married with three kids. And they just spent the whole weekend together in a hotel. And now she's leaving. And she's, she's grieving. And we have access, friends. We have so much access to temptation now that we used to just not have. You've got to protect it. You've got to protect it. You also have to protect your marriage from unrealistic expectations. We talk about this all the time. Whenever I talk about marriage, this is one of the main things I talk about because it's so big. When we get married, we bring all kinds of expectations into the marriage. About money, about cleanliness, 
my wife actually expected me to, like, you know, put my clothes away. It's really strange, things like that. The way that we roll up the toothpaste or the way the toilet paper goes on, there's all these, like, just expectations. They're funny, but about in-laws and family. I kind of thought once I got this woman to marry me, the in-laws would, would realize they don't come for a month every year, <laughs> you know, and, and, but they didn't understand that rule, and so we had to negotiate that, and then all kinds of stuff, right? About time spent with friends, how much time is going to be out of the house in the evenings, about children, the number of children, are we going to have children, how will we children or parent these children once we get them, about physical intimacy, about emotional intimacy, it goes on and on. We could go around the room with a mic and we could add like 20 more of these things that we all bring into marriage, these expectations. And when our expectations aren't met, we can get really frustrated. And when we get really frustrated, we have a tendency to look around and say to ourselves, I have probably married the wrong person. It should not be this difficult. I must have... I mean, I thought I prayed about this, and I talked to people, and like, but I must have married the wrong person, because if, if, if she's not meeting all these expectations, or he's not meeting all these expectations, I mean, clearly there's something wrong here, and the thing that I want to disabuse you of is this. Friends, as a pastor, I have a window into many, many marriages outside of myself, and this was great, because I did this exact same thing when I was young and married, and a brand new pastor. You know, wondering, like, have I married the wrong person because of all these different expectations, and then some other husband would come along going, Pastor, I need to talk to you, and he would just unload on me all the same stuff that I'm verbalizing, and then it would happen, it felt like monthly, some new young you know, married guy would come up to me and say, like, here's what's going on. I'm like, ah, it's not just me. Now that I'm many, many years into this thing, if you're young, and many of you are young couples with young kids, and especially when you have that First kid, yeah, that's hard. Try adding two to four more kids uh, and then talk to me about how complicated it gets. And you begin to feel like, gosh, we're just roommates. What happened? I thought we loved each other. I thought we had romance. Do you remember back when we talked to one another? Uh, do you remember when life didn't just consist of wiping bottoms and cleaning you know, stuff? And, and, and then you begin to say, it would be so much fun elsewhere. And you come to church and you see people cuddling and holding hands and like you're like, no, for them, when they go home, it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, the intimacy, every way you want to describe it, it's just unbelievable. They look into each other's eyes over candlelit dinners every night just going, I love you, you're so awesome. <laughs> and, and you can't believe what happens in the bedroom. And it's incredible, it's unbelievable. That's what we do to one another. We look around and we look at everybody else and say, they, they all, they're all living these dream lives. Ed Diner is a psychology professor at the University of Illinois in Champaign, and he writes this, people today pursue ultra happiness. I think we do. So they expect love to always be romantic and thrilling. People misunderstand happiness now more and more. We used to think happiness was kind of contentment and life satisfaction, but now we've come to define it as a really high arousal kind of excitement. And social media only fuels that. As a pastor, I get to know what's going on. But again, I said this last week, in the, in the best things in people's lives and the most difficult things in people's lives. And then I get your Christmas cards and I see the stuff that you post on social media. And I'm like, everyone thinks you're perfect. But I've been privy to some of the stuff that's going on. So as you turn, if you, Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff, you see what's happening People only post those rare moments where it looks good. 
You know you don't believe that, and so you keep comparing yourself. Quit it. It's leading you to less happiness. I wish I could convince you that this is true. I haven't quite yet, but I'm begging you and pleading with you to quit looking outside of your marriage and thinking that everyone else has figured it out and that everyone else is is living this incredibly ultra-happy existence. They're not. They capture one second where everyone in the family like smiled at the same time or, or, or that one moment on, on their vacation to Tahiti or South Africa or wherever it was or some island you've never even heard of like where they weren't arguing or crying or some common frustration myths. We are the only ones feeling this way. It is not true. Everyone else is giddy in their marriage. You know that's not true. And if I had married the right one, this wouldn't be happening. That's the one, that's the one many of you just, you still believe. And those of us that are Calvinist, which this church kind of is, like, well, God's sovereign, and he has a perfect will, and, and he ordains things, but what if I, I'm the one that, like, got outside his will, and I married, like, here's the great thing about believing that God is utterly sovereign. Once you said, I do, it was God's will before the foundation of the world. I know, that you don't have to worry about that, and we don't have to debate it. Like, it's just, that's what we believe. Like, it's like, so the point is, once you said, I do, you don't have to go like, oh, there was this other perfect person. No, that's it. And I, I know I want to be careful here, especially if your marriage has included, you know, great sin against you, like abuse and that kind of thing. So please don't read too much in it. The, the person being tempted to get out, listen, God is sovereign. You didn't make a mistake. Stephen Arterburn wrote a book, and he said this, A strong marriage takes work, but the rewards are profound and abundant. Expect constant romance, and you kill it, just as too much sugar makes you sick. Seek God to fulfill you and heal you, rather than expect your spouse to do what only God can do. My biggest problem when Becky and I got married is the Jerry Maguire effect. You complete me. (laughs) Right? I put so much pressure on Becky Brown when we first got married. For at least half a decade, I went around expecting her to complete me, her to fill me up. I, too, was a young, insecure man, like Tyson was sharing earlier. Like, I, I, all of us, you bring this emotional baggage in your marriage, and I kept expecting her to be able to fill that which was broken in me. If there's anything that's basic to Christianity, it's this. Nothing except God can fill you. St. Augustine, we have this heart-shaped vacuum, right, that only God fills up. We're empty until God can fill that. But we keep looking. We keep trying to find anyone, everyone else to fill it. Friends, even the greatest love in human, in human experience, it, it won't be enough. And when you put that pressure on another human being to fill you, you're asking too much. It's a weight that they can't bear. Finally, marriage needs God's power. And for me, it was God, the Holy Spirit, showing me what I was doing to my dear wife (laughs) and having to get to the place where I could repent her and say, I've been expecting you to save me. My, My parents got divorced when I was a kid. I walked around with a wound from that my whole life. And I think what I was secretly kind of doing in my heart, not even able to ever articulate it, but I think what I was doing was like going, 
I'm going to prove that there's somebody that will never leave me, right? My dad left us <coughs> for another, you know, woman, and he left my mom for another woman, got remarried, and God used that, and it was all fine in the end, but like, you know, at that, it left this huge wound in my heart, and it's like, my, I, wa- I went away from that divorce saying to myself, I'm going to prove, I'm going to find the one woman that would never leave me, I'm going to find that one romantic love, like my dad did that to us, and, and it broke our family apart, but I'm going to find the one that will never break me, never heal me, you know what I'm saying, like, and, and prove it, that you can find love in this world, and, and the reality is you can find love in this world, but it's, it's only the love of God that is that complete. We have all these unrealistic expectations that we bring into marriage. I mentioned those earlier. And there are realistic expectations. One of them is fidelity. You should expect that in marriage. You should expect your, your spouse to not lie to you. You should expect your spouse to you know, be faithful to you. You should expect that all kinds of things that are healthy. And, and you set up boundaries, the things that they will and will not do. Those are healthy expectations. But if you expect another human being to complete you, you're in territory that you just can't do. And it took the power of God in my life to begin to show me you're expecting too much. Jesus is the only perfect righteous person and the rest of the citizens of the kingdom of God will be populated with adulterers, Drunks, cheaters, liars. Such were some of you, Paul used to say. That's not you anymore. You, you were these things, but now in Christ, you're, you're citizens and saints and beloved of God and, and sons and daughters. But, but this, the kingdom of God, except for Jesus Christ, every other person that will enter the kingdom of God will do so as people who were liars and cheats and adulterers and and people given over to lust, but who bowed in humility and repented in humility and were born anew into the kingdom of God and had the power of God in their lives. Not the least of which is humility. Forgiven much, loved much. If there's one mantra I could just get into the life of my heart more and more in yours, it would be this. You are forgiven much, therefore you are called to love much. Luke 7. Forgiven much, love much, forgiven much, love much, forgiven much, love much. Forgiven little, love little. Some of you act as if you're forgiven very little. You've been forgiven much. The other day, Becky and I had really emotionally charged words for one another and attitudes right before bed. I wish I could say, oh, years ago. No, just recently, oh, like a week ago. We don't cuss at each other. We don't yell at each other. We don't throw things at each other. We don't have abuse in our marriage. But we had emotionally charged, like very frustrating words with one another right before bed. How do you think I slept that night? I fall asleep great. I can always fall asleep. The problem is, an hour later, I'm up for hours, tossing, turning, thinking about everything possible that's going on in the church, and your marriage, my marriage, the fight we just had, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I wake up the next morning, exhausted, to find my wife greeting me 
and saying, how did you sleep? Horrible. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for you. I haven't had my coffee yet, so I'm not really ready to talk about this, but I was expecting more intense words and stuff. But instead, I got concerned. Like, how, how are you? I, I prayed for you that you could sleep. And then I go downstairs and I find a note written to me filled with grace and truth, but filled with grace. I love you. We're going to get through this. I know things are intense right now with church and life and marriage and da 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 but like, I love you and I'm for you and, and I'm so glad you're my husband. Grace upon grace and truth, calling me out where I need to be. I, I don't say this to brag. I'm already telling you, like, we angry words right at bed. That's horrible. <laughs> I'm totally denying what Proverbs tells us. But how do you get that kind of marriage? Friends, it's the power of God in reflecting on the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel. You've got to live this stuff out. That night, as we're having heated words, Becky literally with one finger pointed to me and said, practice what you preach. <laughs> Amen. And I knew it. And I didn't yell back like, nah, no. I'm like, I know, I know. <laughs> You're right. I need to love Jesus more. But she's right. This is what we preach here. You are forgiven much, and you're called to love much. When you've forgive, been forgiven so much, how can you not forgive one another? Friends, I say that to you. Filled with grace, but filled with truth. If you're married, if you're thinking about being married, you have been forgiven so much. Forgive one another. Love one another. Prefer one another. Pray for one another. And pray with one another. This is where the power of God is, friends. If you're failing in your marriage and you're not holding hands and praying for one another, then you're not trying hard enough yet. You can't control the other person. You can't. You can't make restoration happen. You can only control yourself. But I'm talking to all of you in this room today. Hold one another's hands and pray together. That's where it starts. It's cheesy, I know. The couple that prays together stays together. It's ridiculous in its cheesiness, but it's true. It's hard to not forgive one, one, forgive one another and love one another and prefer one another if you hold hands and cry out for the power of God in your life. Well, we don't really pray. And I told her I loved her when we got married. I'm like, yeah, well, get over that. Grab that woman's hands and pray. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to say. I don't care. Just start talking to God. Don't worry about eloquent language. Just start praying to the Lord Jesus Christ in his name and for the power of the Spirit to come upon you and see what he does. Friends, just a few things. One of the things that's very hard, and I'm looking around at a couple elders in this room, is you come to us when it's over. And then you want to fix. Would you please stop that? Right now, when you're struggling, you know, like on the front end, would you cry out for help? Don't wait till it's a disaster to where there's death to the relationship. And then come and say, heal this thing. Right now, don't allow mediocrity in your marriage. Right now, fight for what's healthy. Right now, it, you're saying it's not that bad. Fine, work on it now. Don't just cry out when it's a disaster. If you're in a disaster, cry out, of course, but like, don't wait. 
Cry out for help. Get counseling. Humble yourself. Study one another. Read books. Pray for one another. I just crammed literally two sermons worth into one, and we're way over on time. I'm going to stop. I'm going to pray. We're going to go to the Lord's table, and we, uh, we're going to not even have time for maybe but one song. Maybe. Probably not. Let's pray. Father, as we go to the table right now, we've got business to do, and we need your healing. Please be at work. In Jesus' name, amen.